0: Jones, Australia's leading voice.
1: Well, good evening, and thank you for your company right here on ADH TV, the last line of defence for common sense. Watch ADH, of course, on your television by going to Apple TV or the Google Play Store. Just search ADH to download. There you can watch every episode live or on demand. Now, before we get into the show, there have been very few voices in this country, especially in the media, who have from day one called out the folly regarding renewables and the continual demonisation of fossil fuels. There was always going to be a day of reckoning. Last week, that day arrived with blackouts for the East Coast, Amid power shortages and the surge in electricity prices. Households will be stung in their electricity bill and we've got politicians to thank for it. It's all a consequence of woeful public policy. And this is just the beginning. The reason, the premature push to renewables and the bleeding obvious that when the sun doesn't shine or the wind doesn't blow, no power is being generated. And anyway, once it is generated, where is the storage? How does it get to the grid? This is a green utopia. Yet there are politicians today and eco-millionaires who vouch for this stuff daily. The New South Wales Treasurer, Matt Keane, is one, along, I might add, with three quarters of the National Parliament. One of the best and most distinguished finance writers in the country, Terry McCran, came on my radio program years ago, and together we warned of the economic destruction this idiocy will do. We together called it a National Economic Suicide Note, and it is. We can't function without electricity. This issue is not going away, especially when you've got egomaniac politicians like the WA Premier Mark McGowan, who believes he's some sort of messiah. Western Australia is a mining and resources state, the sole reason it enjoys so much wealth, prosperity and public goods like world-class infrastructure and public transport. So why would such a politician promise to retire state-owned coal-fired power plants An announcement made, I might add, in the middle of an energy crisis. Does this here today, gone tomorrow politician want to take us back to the Stone Age? He says the WA government plans to retire its coal-fired power stations by 2029 and invest $3.8 billion, your money, in green power. What he actually means is he wants to gift around $4 billion in public money to renewable barons, the eco-millionaires who are cashing in on this green religion. Mark McGowan, stop believing in your own hype and come back down to earth. But who can blame McGowan for being so cocky when it was originally the idea of Zach Kirkup, the former Liberal opposition leader who presided over the annihilation of his party at the last state election. Sadly, on this critical issue of energy, the Liberals are no better than Labor. Just look at Matt Keane. Oh, sorry, Matt Green here in New South Wales. What do you think? Have your say. Email me, Jones at adh.tv. <laughs> look, before I say any more, let me make the point that the new Prime Minister Albanese did not create the energy crisis, but he is expected to solve it. While it's not his fault, it is his problem. The blame game won't work. For the first time in its history, last week, a bureaucracy, not the free market, was running energy policy. It's energy by communism, the Australian energy market operator. I'll come to the hypocrisy in a minute, but hypocrisy was in full flight last week. I've said for years now that this push to net zero is a national economic suicide note, self-sabotage. Now we have the spectacle of almost the entire political class, both sides embracing net zero. And of course, on the other side of the argument, big business, millionaires, billionaires, eyeing off the hundreds of billions of dollars of your money that continue to be channelled towards renewable energy. Just imagine how bad it will get when we mindlessly abandon coal and gas, but won't embrace nuclear power. As the widely respected long-time economic commentator Terry McCrane said last year, and I quote, it's hard to avoid the comparison with the 1930s that what almost the entirety of the world has embarked on is the energy equivalent of that decade's appeasement. Indeed, worse than appeasement, across the developed world, it's unilateral energy disarmament in the face of the 2020s version of Hitler's Germany, President Xi's China. Back then, he said, the political class turned a blind eye to Germany's rearming. Now the far, far more numerous political class turns a blind eye to China's energy rearming. Unquote, spot on. China has the world's biggest fossil fuel armoury, emitting close to 30% of all global carbon dioxide emissions, if that is the problem. More in two weeks than we emit in a whole year. Last week saw energy somersaults of Olympic proportion. You might recall at the 2019 federal election, News Corp, a formidable and reputable media entity, rightly savaged the ALP, which under Bill Shorten promised to reduce carbon dioxide emissions by 45% by 2030. In that 2019 election, News Corp argued that the ALP's 45% reduction would, quote, see grocery bills soar, it will zap the national grid, and a front page story headlined, $60 billion. That's how much extra Labor's carbon policy will cost our economy, unquote. Now, remember, Labor was arguing carbon dioxide emissions reduction. But two years later, the same News Corp offered in October 2021 a 16-page wraparound on its capital city newspapers proclaiming that, quote, Australia is the best-placed nation on Earth to be the global winner in a net-zero world, unquote. No one arguing that we're a global energy giant and should not be intimidated by ideological zealots from taking advantage of our unique energy strength. Instead, a News Corp editorial argued, quote, by not declaring a net zero target, Australia stands accused of pushing against good citizenship and global opinion, unquote. In other words, we were frightened of a bit of international odium if we didn't toe the line with the authors of our economic suicide note. In fact, far from the savage language that addressed Bill Shorten in 2019, a News Corp editorial in 2021 claimed, quote, a shift to a clean economy would boost GDP by $890 billion and add 195,000 jobs over the next 50 years, unquote. But in 2019, News Corp argued in relation to the same policy, quote, $60 billion, that's how much extra Labor's carbon policy will cost our economy, unquote. I make that a mathematical turnaround from a $60 billion cost to an $890 billion benefit of almost a trillion dollars. And then one Canon Brooks entered the scene with glowing references to the fact that he was in the vanguard of the net zero campaign. But as Joe Aston pointed out in Rear Window back in 2020, Canon Brooks' Atlassian company, quote, pays zero company tax to Canberra on greater than $1 billion of revenue booked here, thanks in no small part to its use of the research and development tax incentive, unquote. Oh yes, this is a lucrative business, this renewable energy game, until last week. Then it all came unstuck. The response to the lights going out was twofold. The Federal Energy Minister, Chris Bowen, a complete turn-off to voters, wants more investment in renewables and storage to avoid future energy crises. Yet experts argued that a shortage of coal-fired power was one of the main causes for the crisis. And you know why that is? Coal-fired power has been demonised to the point of extinction by the same Matt Keane and Chris Bowen. And now on Friday, News Corp's Daily Telegraph on page six and seven heralded Keane the Prince of Darkness, and rightly so. And on its front page, Old Keane Coal. There he is, the Prince of Darkness. And then the front page, Old Keane Coal. Totally appropriate. The Prince of Darkness. What then did Matt Keane do? He trotted off to the Governor of New South Wales to seek authority to force coal companies to deliver fuel via the Essential Services Act, Regulation 2022, which authorises the Minister for Energy to direct persons to take action, quote in relation to the supply or distribution of coal to a power station in response to the declaration, get this, that the supply or distribution of coal is an essential service, unquote. There you are. The very man who wants coal completely out of the Emerge Energy equation has now signed a declaration that coal is an essential service. This is allegedly the Energy Minister, Matt Keane in New South Wales. For blind ideological reasons, coal, as a reliable, affordable and available source of energy, must be gone, according to Keane, singing from the Greens' song sheet. But then, to save his political backside, without shame, he co-signs a declaration with the Governor of New South Wales that, quote, coal is an essential service. Such a person should not be anywhere near energy policy. Well, as I said earlier, we are regarded worldwide as a global energy giant the third biggest energy exporter on the planet after Russia and Saudi Arabia, but two-thirds of our energy production goes overseas. Remember it was Matt Canavan who said in the middle of the election campaign that net zero is dead? And while the comment was described at the time as unhelpful and frustrating by colleagues, he is a lone political voice speaking the truth. And don't tell us after last week that Australia is still going to pursue this net zero carbon dioxide emissions by 2050, and coal is out of the equation. Gas, which is a fossil fuel, suddenly seems greatly in demand. And one of the most ill-informed proponents of the elimination of coal from the energy equation is the media darling and the New South Wales Energy Minister, Matt Keane, who raced off to Government House and last week shamelessly signed off on a provision of the Essential Services Act in New South Wales from 1988, which declares that, quote, The supply and distribution of coal is an essential service." Unquote. I've said on this whole energy issue, hypocrisy has no limits. A chameleon is a member of the lizard species with a pronounced ability to shift into different colours. The energy chameleon is Matt Keane. But let's go to the man we should be listening to, Queensland Senator Matt Canavan. Matt, thank you for your time again. What do you make of this? Fearing the lights will go out, Keane takes himself off to Government House to invoke the powers of the Essential Services Act, which proclaims what we know, that coal is an essential service.
0: Well, it it, uh, can only be summed up, uh, Alan, in the words, uh, socialism sucks. It Mm -hmm. really does suck, uh, because under a communist socialist regime, what do you get? You get shortages, you get uh, queues lining up for things, and that's what we've got, as you say, in an energy-rich nation, one of the world's largest energy exporters, we ourselves here are running out of energy. It's like Eskimos running out of ice. That's what's happening here in Australia by not being able to turn on our appliances all the time while we export the energy to other countries. Yeah, so and they I can mean, th- th- it's pens- an absolute disgrace.
1: Uh, Matt, just repeating, we're the third biggest energy exporter on the planet, but pensioners and elderly people have to worry about whether the electricity is available to keep them warm. Why aren't we building, that is, government, if private sector now want it, new coal fired power plants? when we are exporting high-quality thermal coal to keep the lights on in other countries?
0: Because we're obsessed with renewables, Alan. We've become obsessed by the siren song of the Greens, that somehow installing solar and wind and renewable energy uh, is the answer to everything. And even now, in the midst of this crisis, at a time where we cannot provide enough power for, for pensioners, for factories to stay open, for people to stay in their jobs... We have our energy ministers continuing to double down and saying, yes. the answer, the answer to this crisis is let's keep doing what we've been doing to get us into this crisis because they're now saying we haven't invested enough in renewables. We haven't invested enough in the forms of power that we cannot rely on that have put us in this mess. I mean, they're now saying, Alan, that somehow coal is unreliable. You hear that a lot, that, that the reason we're in this is because coal is unreliable. Well, a memo needs to be written to these morons. Old coal fired power stations are unreliable. Old cars are unreliable old things are unreliable if you build new things guess what we shouldn't have to spell this out but if you build new things they tend not to be uh liable to break down and that's why all the countries we're exporting coal to but if their if their thesis was right and coal is unreliable shouldn't the lights be going off in japan in korea in india in vietnam and a bunch of other countries that rely on our coal but they're not because they those countries have invested in new coal-fired power stations in fact there are 345 coal power stations being built around the world, yet not a single one in Australia. You can't even consider it. You, you, I, so, I get ridiculed and humiliated so, so if would it, would you even mention the idea that we'd so use Matt, our own wouldn't it be good resources. policy
1: for Peter Dutton to get behind the pensioners and promise to build 10 heli coal fired power stations, high-efficiency, low-emissions, and just say to the electorate, well, here we are, that's what we stand for, the other mob don't, you make your choice at the next election?
0: Well, Alan, I'd just take one at this stage. I'd be happy with one, but maybe two or three would probably do us of a considerable size. We have lost 12 coal-fired power stations over the past decade, some of those relatively small, Uh, but we have a deficit. We have a deficit of reliable power in this country. We do not have a deficit of renewable energy. We've been installing renewable energy at a rate that is faster than any country in the world. Uh, Over the last few years, we have installed 200 watts per person of solar or wind energy. That is a rate that is four times, four times greater than Europe or North America, and yet we still have the morons that run our energy system saying, uh, we we don't have enough, we don't have enough of this thing that is totally unreliable that we can't use at the night. Have a look at the last week about when the issue's been on. The issue has been at night, when the sun goes down. So, solar is completely useless, and the wind is just a complete lottery and that is a good metaphor for what we're doing to our energy system, we're doing to our pensions, we're doing to our manufacturing industry. We are playing a big gamble. We're making a big gamble that the wind blows every night. Well, it doesn't. I mean, you had this absurd situation where Matt Keane, Matt Keen, blamed the situation on the fact that it's gotten cold. And it wasn't his fault that it's gotten cold. Well, Matt, that's called winter. It happens every year. I don't know what planet he's been on, but every year, Matt, it gets cold. It's going to get cold again next year, and we better well get ourselves sorted. So we don't have this every year for our pensioners. Matt, you've said,
1: which everybody outside watching understands, pensioners and people who don't understand the detail, that it's insane for us to be selling coal to new coal-fired power stations overseas, but banning the construction of them in Australia. Now, how all of these problems we face are a consequence of public policy, aren't they?
0: Mm, absolutely. This is a man-made Uh, crisis, the energy crisis here. It's been made by men and it can be changed by men. It can be changed by men that show leadership and women. I'm using the term men broadly. Uh, It can be changed by men that uh, that show leadership and show courage to stand up uh, to the green agenda that wants to shut down our industry in this country. I mean, it's not like the coal gets cleaned, uh, Alan, on the boat. When the boat goes off and leaves from ports (laughs) just near me here in North Queensland... There's no, there's no sort of washing of the coal that makes sure <laughs> that the emissions don't occur in Japan and Korea. I mean, it's the same coal. And, and and to the extent people are worried about this issue of climate change, the 170 power stations, coal-fired power stations being built in China are going to emit the same amount of emissions that one or two or three coal-fired power stations would here. So why would we ban ourselves the use of this natural resource that can solve all of these issues and not blow the planet up? I mean... The question has, should be put back and pressure should be back on Chris Bowen and Matt Keane now is, why can't we build a power station? Quiet. Like, what is the reason against it? Well, because tell us about... climate Tell us, change. <clears throat> tell us about this. Why are the... power stations not going to blow the planet up? Where's yeah. the science that would say that? Tell us about the Sogo power plant outside Tokyo. Mm. I've been there, Alan. I've been there in Yokohama. Uh, it is uh, one of the most advanced coal-fired power stations in the world. It's a high-efficiency, low-emission coal-fired power station, but uh, under a subset of that, it's known as an ultra-supercritical coal-fired power station, all that means is that it is built in a way that allows the boiler to get to a higher temperature. Uh, It's built with advanced metals, uh, uh, with advanced concrete, and and having that higher temperature means you extract more of the energy out of the coal than you would otherwise. They get efficiencies approaching almost 50% of the energy content of the coal, where typically the power stations here in Australia are less than 40%. If you make more electricity from each tonne of coal, you therefore have less emissions, fewer emissions Absolutely. per tonne of coal. Absolutely. And that's better for the environment. It's as simple so, as that. <laughs> this power station is two kilometres from downtown Yokohama. You can see the, the middle of it, one of Japan's major cities. And it runs with almost zero pollution, zero other pollutants as well, apart from carbon Stag- emissions. Stag- and Stag- that's the sort of thing we should build here.
1: And, I mean, why would you be surprised... Oh, I know. Why would you be surprised that we're 2,000 megawatts short of power in New South Wales? There's this massive bias over many years, built towards renewables and against coal-fired power. So why would any responsible board approve new investment, either in new plant or maintenance, knowing that under Labor and people like Keane and the Greens and the Teals, they want coal-fired power outfits
0: out of business? Exactly, Alan. And this is where the net zero policy hits the rubber, the net zero rubber hits the road. Because I think a lot of people have been hoodwinked to think, well net zero emissions by 2050, that's 28 years away. It's not going to affect my life today. But business decisions are made for the next uh, decades, uh, not just for tomorrow. And and, and it's not like they're going to turn off all the coal-fired power stations on the 31st of December 2049. That's not how this policy is designed to work. They're going to progressively shut them down over time. And so when you put a stop clock on someone's business, guess what happens? They're not going to invest in that business. They're not going to maintain it and therefore we get the kind of breakdowns we're seeing and we certainly don't get the interest in building new ones. So we've got if we want to solve this crisis, we've got to ditch net zero. We've got to get rid of net zero because your bills are going up thanks to net zero. You can't turn on your dishwasher at night because of the, uh, uh, the, 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 the Soviet SARS in, in the Politburo in Sydney because of net zero. It is net zero that is causing these issues and we've got to get away from that and actually build our country again reindustrialize and use our natural resources for the common good. You are
1: magnificent. Look, we'll leave it there. There's many more things we could say. I like just talk talking about communist czars. I mean, fancy having a bureaucracy like the energy regulator telling coal-fired power generators producing electricity, there'll be a cap on the price they can charge. So in other words, provide the electricity at a loss. I mean, oh, well, so where the New do we, politburo, eh? What it's just, the new Politburo, Alan. It is. We've got one here. We've just got one it. here. Matt, must talk again soon. Always grateful for your time and your simple understanding Thanks of on. these critical issues. There he is, isn't he a breath of fresh air? Senator Matt Canavan from Queensland. It's Budget Day tomorrow in New South Wales and Queensland. The one common theme will be debt in both states up to our eyeballs. Already in Queensland, debt's over 100 billion, and New South Wales approaching 120 billion. But that's for another day but I will be looking at both those issues. But I note that both budgets are dominated by massive spending. Yet the Governor of the Reserve Bank, Philip Lowe, and I'll have something to say further about him tomorrow night, is telling households that they don't cut back their spending, there'll be blood, whatever that means. And the Governor says he wants to crush rampant consumer price growth, and he's condemning increased spending. Where do governments fit into this? There's no restraint by them billions of dollars. As I said, I'll have more to say about that tomorrow, but what has this got to do with what is making us stumped? Well, amongst about $30 billion in New South Wales in new expenditure measures, there's $25 million for an Aboriginal flagpole on the Harbour Bridge. The two other flags are the New South Wales flag and the Australian flag. Why in one nation we need to fly an Australian flag and an Aboriginal flag is not clear to me a six-storey-high flagpole which the Premier says is essential to celebrate our Indigenous history. I'm not sure about that either when we look at massive Indigenous disadvantage in remote parts of New South Wales and the Northern Territory. However, where does the $25 million price tag come from? And can taxpayers see a line-by-line statement of the detailed costs? What's more, according to the original announcement, it'll take two years to build a third flagpole, which prompted Premier Perrottet to say, he'd climb up there and put it up myself if I need to. Premier, don't worry about that. Just tell us in absolute detail where the $25 million price tag comes from, because I can assure you for taxpayers, whatever their political leanings, the $25 million tag is utterly absurd. Look, I mentioned a fortnight ago, the plight of Julian Assange. Now, Prime Minister Albanese is being forced to realise that what sometimes is easy in opposition may prove a little more difficult in government. Anthony Albanese gave a commitment in opposition when he declared that the incarceration in the UK of Julian Assange, pending his extradition to the United States, had gone on long enough and that Mr Albanese in opposition wanted Julian Assange freed. Julian Hill is the Labor member for the federal seat of Bruce He's a member of the bipartisan Bring Julian Assange Home parliamentary group. He said recently, and I quote, I hope one of the first acts of our new cabinet will be to speak up for our fellow citizen and demand the US drop the shameful prosecution of Julian Assange, unquote. He said the government must stand clear and firm on its principles, including the principle of press freedom. Julian Assange, as I've told you, is in this appalling Belmarsh prison where he's been since 2019 a maximum security prison in the UK reserved for violent criminals and offenders. Whatever our personal opinions might be, Julian Assange is an Australian, an Australian publisher. He is not accused of anything. He's certainly not accused of hacking, but he's the first publisher in history to be charged with espionage. His extradition to the United States has now been approved by the British government, with the Home Secretary, Priti Patel, saying that she, quote, must sign an extradition order if there are no grounds to prohibit the order being made, unquote, and the British courts found there were none. Julian Assange has 14 days to appeal. He is right, in my opinion, when he argues he did nothing wrong. He was doing his job. But he faces 175 years in prison in America for engaging in regular journalistic activity, basically exposing what he believed was political corruption. The Republican Senator Rand Paul has said, and I quote, the founding fathers would have protected WikiLeaks at all costs and it's time that we inherit their spirit, unquote. Julian Assange didn't hack that which he published. He didn't assist Chelsea Manning to hack the US servers she already had access to the documents in question. Chelsea Manning took full responsibility for obtaining the documents. All Assange and WikiLeaks did was passively receive information and publish the material, just as The New York Times, The Guardian and other media organisations do. Indeed, Chelsea Manning said, and I quote, "'Although I stopped sending documents to WikiLeaks, no-one associated with WikiLeaks pressured me into giving more information.' The decisions I made to send documents and information to WikiLeaks were my own decision, and I take full responsibility for my actions, unquote. But because Julian Assange published, as did, I might add, other media organisations, he is currently, as I told you, in maximum security prison in the UK, now to be extradited to America. Chelsea Manning, born Bradley Manning, a former United States Army soldier, was convicted in 2013 for violations of the Espionage Act after leaking material to the publisher WikiLeaks. She was imprisoned from 2010 to 2017, but her sentence was commuted by President Obama. In other words, she was pardoned, not so Julian Assange. Well, the former New South Wales Premier and Foreign Affairs Minister Bob Carr has declared that Australia should demand the freedom of Julian Assange, citing the precedent set when the Obama administration pardoned others for revealing state secrets. So, Mr Carr joins me. Mr Carr, thank you for your time. This is surely a test for Anthony Albanese, who's on the record saying that
2: the Assange case had gone on too long and he wanted Albanese, Albanese free, He wanted Assange freed. Yeah, and I, I agree with that. And I, I do it in the most encouraging way for our new Prime Minister. My, my message to Anthony, for whom I've got enormous affection and respect, is if you, if you press this matter, with the Americans, they will respond positively, even if, even if at first blush their instincts might be to resist and to say our CIA wants this pursued. Um, if you persist, they will grant the dropping of extradition because, Alan, we are too important an ally to be gainsaid if we say this is important to us, and it ought to be important to us. He's an Australian citizen, as you as you began by pointing out. I note that Deputy Prime Minister Richard Miles has today
1: downplayed the level of support Julian Assange should expect from the Australian government. Why why do political figures like this backtrack when they make it into government? Richard Miles is now saying Mr. Assange's future was out of Australia's hands.
2: Well. Um, I don't want to pause what what ministers have said, but I do want to stress this. You highlighted it a minute ago. That is, the Australian public will not stand for seeing an American citizen, the very American citizen who passed on the the controversial material to um, Julian Assange, allowed to go free, commuted, the, the sentence commuted by Barack Obama, while an Australian for publishing the material he got from from Manning is forced to go through the process of an extradition, facing a trial in a Virginian court that is very likely to lead to incarceration for the rest of his life, dying in a maximum security prison on the plains of Oklahoma. Now, I I think as it dawns on Australians that America is insisting on doing this to the Australian who published the material... Even though it's commuted the sentence mm. of the American mm. who conveyed the material to mm. Assange, will think now. Hang on, hang on. That's no way to treat an ally. Quite as I as I said in my article that, that appeared in uh, Nine Media, Sydney Morning Herald, and The Age today, um, we do an awful lot for this alliance. An awful lot, including spending 150 million buying American nuclear subs. Uh, this is about five. This, is, this this issue warrants about five minutes of President Biden's. Over Office time. But our
1: Prime Minister is going to attend next week's NATO meeting in Madrid, where he'll meet both President Biden and Prime Minister Boris Johnson. Given that he said in December about the Assange, Assange case, enough is enough, and that Assange had already paid, he said, a big price, and has subsequently reiterate that, posi- reiterate that position, what should our Prime Minister be saying
2: to President Biden? Well, first of all, the, the Prime Minister is entirely correct in saying this is a matter for he implies, uh, behind-the-scenes diplomacy, yes, yes. not megaphone diplomacy. He's he no. absolutely correct. Yeah. America is a valued partner and ally of Australia's. Uh, they don't deserve to have this thing, any difference, any potential difference between us, uh, trawled through the media. But but in the context of uh, an international summit, our Prime Minister is perfectly entitled, um, in a in a sidelines conversation with President Biden, to say, Mr President, as you agree, we are terrific allies. Um, And I, I, I in my short time as PM, have given a priority to the things that concern us. The the Quad, for example, the meeting of the Quad, which I attended within within hours of becoming Prime Minister. Um, There is one thing that's of importance to us, and that is uh, you dropping the extradition proceedings against an Australian citizen. Now, if there's a bit of pushback... From the, uh, from the US President saying that it's terribly difficult, that, that America's got other interests, um, then I think it's an opportunity for our Prime Minister just to push a bit more firmly, making it very clear that he speaks for the Australian people. The Australian people see Assange, whatever his shortcomings, whatever criticisms one would make, as being an Australian, a holder of an Australian passport. Yes. And entitled titled to the advocacy the of the Australian government.
1: Just clarifying for our viewers the point that the former Foreign Minister Bob Carr made then about being a very good ally of the United States, we actually dispatched a warship to the Gulf when we were asked by America. We went into Afghanistan when we were asked by America. We've sent trainers and planes into Iraq and Syria, asked by America. We host two communications bases in Australia. So come again to you, former Foreign Minister aren't we entitled to a modest request that in the spirit with which Barack Obama pardoned Chelsea Manning, drop the extradition
2: orders against Julian Assange? Precisely put. Precisely put. This is small change in the context of an alliance in which we're paying $150 billion for American subs, in which we host communications facilities that, by any test, make Australia a nuclear target. Uh, Tony Abbott, um, within hours of being asked, made a commitment that Australia would send trainers, uh, fighter planes and, um, and uh, other military personnel into the most difficult area involving the, the final battle against ISIS um, in Iraq and Syria. I said at the time in, in an interview that I thought that was a reasonable alliance request, providing we weren't committing to some open-ended war on ter- terrorism but providing a humanitarian intervention, along with the Americans and the Kurdish forces, to rescue an endangered population. So that's the kind of ally we are in the context of all this geostrategic heft. We're entitled to say to the US president, there's one minor thing. It's not a big issue in your politics. It gets little attention. The Trump administration started this extradition. Um, Obama would not have done it because he was very conscious of the argument about freedom of the media. If you, if you allow this to proceed against Assange, you're creating a precedent that would have the New York Times or the Washington Post uh, prosecuted for printing mm. material that a whistleblower gives them mm. about American wars mm. and about the atrocities that might attend on those wars. Uh, uh, Assange is in trouble because he, he used material given him by an American who, as we've said, has been pardoned to print details of American war crimes in Iraq. Now, that should not be a hanging offence and Australia should make that very clear and America would listen to us if we made it so just, clear. So
1: j- just finally, given your experience as a foreign minister, because you have known the Americas and you've dealt with all the hierarchy of American politics, just a simple question. Do you believe then, reiterating what you've said, that if our Prime Minister
2: requested the release of Julian Assange America would have every reason to agree. Yes, with the qualification that if on first blush the Americans are saying, no, that one's too hard, we're, we're too committed, our Prime Minister responds with a bit of, a bit of character, a bit of panache, a bit of humour, but above all, a bit of firmness. I believe the Americans will say yes because he's a new Prime Minister and Australia is such a darn good ally. Good on you. In another world, just a quick one before you go, uh, when
1: you were Premier and so on, I mean, Anthony Albanese, was a young bloke... And he worked for you. Uh, what sort of character assessment do you offer of the new Prime Minister?
2: Well, I think one quality that stands out above all is sheer good humour. And I think his colleagues like him because his temperament, his temperament sets, sets him up so well for this job. He, he's got to have other qualities as well. But I think the, the thing that stood out for me is his, his, his good-tempered spirit. Good on you. Good to talk to
1: you. Always good to talk to you, Mr Carr. Thank you for your time and for your insights. Interesting, isn't it, to our viewers out there, Julian Assange, whatever you might think, this whole thing is a scandal. And of course, if you look inside, as I've said many times, inside your passport, there is a statement inside the passport that wherever you may travel with this Australian passport, governments will do everything in their power to minister to your rights and your freedoms. I think it's time some of those things were implemented in relation to Julian Assange. Look, as I've said earlier tonight, there we were last week, the New South Wales Energy Minister, Matt Keane, and he's not on his own, but he wants coal and gas completely out of the energy equation by 2030. But to save his political backside, when the lights are about to go out, he trots off to the Governor and signs an essential services declaration that, quote, coal is an essential service. We knew that, Mr Keane. Coal companies, though, under that declaration can be directed to save the day, to give fuel, which is coal, to power generators under so-called emergency powers. The declaration even gives Mr Keene the power to direct coal companies to provide fuel below market cost, in other words, at a loss. Last Monday, the Australian energy market operator, another bureaucracy, imposed a $300 a megawatt hour cap on the price coal plants can charge for power generation. That means the producer of electricity would be running at a loss. Short of coal? Well, the same Matt Keane knocked back a proposal last December to keep the coal fired Araring power station open longer. It provides 20% of New South Wales energy. Keane rejected the proposal, so Araring will close in a couple of years with nothing to replace its supply of energy to New South Wales. But the bloke who blocked a rearing in December was racing off to the Governor last week to save his political hide, to declare coal an essential service. We're being run by dishonest fools and the public know that. As Dale Ellis from Innisfail writes today, in a country renowned for its, ab- that's in Queensland, in a co- thank you for watching by the way, in a country renowned for its abundant and affordable power, it's a disgrace that we have a full blown energy crisis on our hands, courtesy of politicians choosing to sacrifice energy security in favour of climate change zealotry. So, what do we get today? Another bureaucracy. The Energy Security Board is going to issue a draft plan where coal and gas power stations will receive payments to secure reliable supply and keep the electricity system operating. You get the drift? We're now going to pay coal and gas power stations to keep the lights on. That's how important they are. This Energy Security Board was established by the nation's energy ministers following a review into the future security of the national electricity market and is supposed to provide oversight for energy security, quote, to drive better outcomes for consumers, unquote. And today we're told that this board, listen, has rejected demands for fossil fuels to be cut from its draft capacity mechanism, saying it is essential that coal and gas plants do not exit the power grid before replacement renewables and storage generation is in place. And that looks like being in the never-never. So generators will now be paid for guaranteeing standby supply. Paid to provide coal, which Keen and Co. want to abolish. Forget Adam Bant and the Teals, They have no political power, Albanese has got 77 seats. But we we are regarded worldwide as a global energy giant, the third biggest energy exporter on the planet after Russia and Saudi Arabia, but two thirds of our energy production goes overseas. There's one question that has to be asked by media outlets, writers, government, oppositions and business. Whatever the merits of renewables are, last week proved they can't do the job. Yet the Energy Minister Keane is racing off to Government House to gain a signed declaration that coal is an essential service. Can we now get on with the job of allowing coal and gas and renewables to be operating on a level playing field? As Bert Bosmer of Surrey Hills in Victoria wrote at the weekend. I quote, Imagine you owned a bakery. Now imagine if the Government made laws that limited how much bread you could sell and when you could sell it. Next, Imagine if the same government not only encouraged another bakery to open next door to your bakery, but heavily subsidised that bakery and then enacted laws that made it compulsory for the public to buy a certain amount of bread from that other bakery at very high prices, even though the quality of its bread was poor and its delivery unreliable. What would your bakery suffer? Would you invest in new ovens or would you cut your losses and start investing in the other bakery? Well, he says, that's what's happened to our energy supply and that's why it's costing us a load of bread for energy we can no longer rely on, unquote. Well, as a postscript, after all that last week and all the virtue signalling on climate change, Prime Minister Albanese seems to be walking away from Labor's election pledge to cut power bills for families and business by $275 within three years. As Peter online wrote, Right now, saving Australia is number one, and saving the planet is best left to China and Russia, who are the major polluters, unquote. I repeat again, we're at war. The advocates of current energy policy have declared an economic war on their own country and on future generations as well. China is building right now more than three times the entire generating capacity of Australia's brown and black coal-fired power stations. Who is standing up for Australia, prepared to ditch mindless ideology? Well, just before we go, we all know that President Joe Biden is a joke, the unimpressive geriatric president of the United States who's nine times out of ten incoherent and mind-numbing. He couldn't even remember to get off his bike without falling over. But what about the joke that is Kamala Harris, the Vice President, Someone her own party didn't want during the Democratic presidential primaries. She was one of the first to withdraw her nomination back in 2019. She had no support, but chosen to be Biden's running mate. She was propelled into the limelight again. She was the darling of the left in a world where it's all about identity politics and ticking boxes. Harris, remember, was on the cover of Vogue magazine and paraded constantly as Biden's heir apparent. The Democrats were keen to show an exciting, younger, next generation presidential candidate next to the aging president. It was meant to be Kamala Harris. Well, the shine has worn off. The Democratic Party now admit to the quote, Kamala problem. That is, she just isn't popular with the public. She was proven to be a political lightweight when the hopeless Biden assigned her to manage and clean up the southern border crisis, where thousands of illegal migrants were arriving, producing a total collapse in law and order. She didn't even bother visiting the border until the media pressure was so intense that she finally paid it a visit to see the problem firsthand. Many in the Democratic Party feel she is not living up to her responsibilities as Vice President, but her defenders say she's unable to do much, as she's always required in the Senate to cast her tie-breaking vote. That's because no party has a majority in the Senate out of the 100 seats, it's 50-50 with the Vice President constitutionally able to cast a tie-breaking vote. But many insiders believe there is no going back for Kamala Harris. In other words, she can forget the automatic endorsement for the top job post Biden, which she thought she'd secure. And apparently there's no love lost between Harris and the First Lady Jill Biden. And this is because during the primaries, Harris criticized Joe Biden's record on race. And it raises a good point, doesn't it, which I've always found to be peculiar about this arrangement. How are the public meant to believe that Harris was the best person suited for the job of vice president and that she's totally on board with a Biden presidency when for months during the primaries, she would attack Biden on stage? Her insults towards him are a matter of public record. How can you then team up with him a few months afterwards and declare you're a united front? The answer is you can't. On April 16, in a list of the top Democratic presidential candidates for 2024, The Washington Post ranked the Secretary of Transportation, Pete Buttigieg, second behind Biden, but ahead of third-placed Harris. Even in her home state of California, she's persona non grata. So the Biden-Harris wheels are falling off. It's a sorry story for the leader of the world's democracies. And come the midterm elections in November, it'll be clear that the Democratic Party is leaderless. Biden and Harris are both for the political scrap Buttigieg may be their only hope. What do you think? That's it from me tonight anyway. I'll see you tomorrow night. Plenty on. See you tomorrow night on ADH TV. Good night.